This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. McManus, you're fucking up my floor, McManus. My dick, you don't have to mop it up again. You lose an eye, you get kicked in the balls, you have a face full of shit, you become a different man. This is a prison, not a democracy. Don't you fuck with me, my brother. Please, sir, may I fuck my wife? Don't you walk away, you cocksucker. Come on, Dad. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. How do you keep that hat on your head? No quote? Right now, we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster. And before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Inside Oz. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. So today I'm going to be looking at Capital P, the fourth episode of the first series, and I can't believe we're already at the midpoint of the series. It's so refreshing not to have to be saying that when you get to around episode 11 or 12, this this is how TV should be. Just want to point out as well, if this episode sounds slightly different from the other ones, that's because I'm recording in my sister-in-law's house today. My wife, she's away on holiday with her sister and their mum and their two-year-old little boy. So I'm house-sitting and dog-sitting, so if it sounds a little different, that's why. So having got that little disclaimer out of the way, let's take a look at episode 4, capital P. The episode holds an 8.5 on IMDb. It was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Darnell Martin, who is back again after directing episode 1. The episode was first broadcast on July 28, 1997, a day which saw a devastating flood hit Spring Creek in Fort Collins, Colorado. Puff Daddy, Faith Evans and 112 were at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 for a 7th straight week, with I'll Be Missing You paying tribute to Notorious B.I.G., Nearly a million children stayed home from school in Santiago, Chile due to high smog levels, and HBO's Oz lost its first major cast member. I don't want to fight nobody! In America, we all have certain inalienable rights. Like the right to bear arms and the right to remain silent. But the state has the ultimate right. It can kill us. Due to popular demand, Governor James Devlin revived capital punishment. And he decided that Jefferson Keene, a man he doesn't know, a man he will never even meet, should be put to death. Should be put down like a rabid dog. No! So Act 1 kicks off with the now traditional narration from Augustus. And he confirms that due to popular demand, Governor Deflin has reinstated the death penalty and that Jefferson Keene will be the first person to die under the revived law. All the while, we see a flashback to the gym fight between Keen and the Latinos from the previous episode, using angles from what would have been filmed by Healy and the other guards, so we're essentially watching the evidence from Keen's hearing. With Leo by his side, Devlin holds a press conference saying that people are tired of being afraid and that they want to see that something is being done. A reporter questions him about the death penalty, saying that it's been proven that executions have no effect on the increase or decrease of crime whatsoever. She doesn't say who it's been proven by, just that it's been proven. Devlin fires back saying that the law is especially necessary if it has no effect on numbers, adding that murders are random and senseless, maybe the punishment should be too. The camera whips over to Leo who gives a great what the fuck did you just say face, and then drops his head and shakes it. His expression says more than any words good. Devlin finishes saying that Keane will be the first person executed in 34 years, meaning the last execution occurred in 1963, assuming we're playing in real time. 
We move into the library with Sister Pete saying that Keen is the first because he's young and black and that the public won't feel safe if they execute a 70-year-old white guy. Diane makes a point about how they're going to have two sets of protesters outside, one for each side of the death penalty debate, while Healy just seems bothered about how that will mean there'll be even less parking spaces. McManus slams the table in annoyance, but Healy raises a good point, even if he doesn't realise it. If people can't get into work because they have nowhere to park, then that will leave them short-staffed, and if they're short-staffed, that leaves them open to the inmates taking the prison and starting the riot they keep mentioning. Leo doesn't think the protesters are going to be an issue, but Sister Pete tells him that when the protesters come, she will be standing there with them. Leo says he can't have a member of his staff at a vigil and mentions that the governor is threatening more budget cuts, including Sister Pete's job. Sister Pete asks if that's a threat or not and says that she has a permanent vocation, saying that if she wants to, she can go to a missionary in Pago Pago, which for anybody who doesn't know is the capital of American Samoa in the Pacific and lies just under 4,800 miles west of San Diego as the crow flies, and approximately 2,500 miles east of Brisbane, Australia. So we're talking castaway territory, only with a little more than a volleyball named Wilson for company. Now I'm assuming that Sister Pete is not there now because she wants to be in an institution such as ours making a difference, but just do a quick Google search for Pago Pago and I know which option I'd be choosing if the option was on the table. Leo asks her not to join the protesters and says that if she does, then she is fired. He doesn't say it in a malicious or threatening way, more a then I've got to do what I've got to do sort of way. There's a tense silence from everybody as Sister Pete stands up saying, that's fine. And she leaves, saying she'll send a postcard from Pago Pago. Over in M-City, Kenny is asking, what if Keen didn't kill Martinez? Markstrom tells him that he did it, and Kenny, with the greatest example of clutching at straws, says, yeah, I know he did it. I'm saying, what if he didn't do it? We pan down and see Nina and D'Angelo talking about where Keen's mind must be at, knowing that he's going to die, with Nina saying that the only difference is that Keen knows the exact date he'll die. Pan up to Schillinger, talking to one of the Aryans. I had a look into this character a little, as he's only been seen in the background so far. Played by Leif Riddell, he's credited as Mark Mack for the remainder of his run, but was uncredited in the first three episodes, and credited in this episode simply as Arian. But for ease, I'll refer to him as Mack from now on. Schillinger says that Keane is being given the choice of how he will be executed, and that if given the choice himself, he would choose death by hanging. Mack says, what about lethal injection? To which Schillinger says that's for pussies. As he says this, they pass Donald Groves, who says that they say a lethal injection causes no pain. How do they know? Someone come back from the dead and tell them they didn't feel anything? It's very perceptive from Groves, though. Ribado goes to see Beecher and asks if he's heard about Sister Pete getting fired. Beecher says that he is heard and, like her, is also against the death penalty, and Ribado says that he is, too. Beecher asks if Ribado was around when the last person was executed, and he says that he was the last person executed. We get a flashback to a young Rebido going to the electric chair to a nice a cappella rendition of Jailhouse Rock. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out who did this version. Get in contact if you know who it is. So, in an electric chair execution, inmates have their face covered. In this case, they use a leather mask, which looks something straight out of a horror film, but I think it looks quite badass. But things don't quite go to plan with the execution as the lights start to flicker and we cut back to Beecher saying, rather sceptically, that Ribido was saved by the 65 blackout, which thankfully means that we're not entering into supernatural happenings. There was an actual reason for this occurring. So by introducing the 65 blackout into proceedings, if Ribido was meant to be executed in 1965, then 34 years on would set Oz in the distant future of two years' time in 1999. However, Augustus's narration has been given new inmate conviction dates as being from 1997. So that is either a, an error in the timeline, or when Devlin was referring to 34 years earlier, he was not counting Ribado's attempted execution as it didn't actually occur. 
the 65 blackout was a real event. On November 9th, 1965, a disruption in the supply of electricity affected parts of Ontario and Canada, as well as Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and Vermont in the northeastern U.S. states. Over 30 million people over a distance of 80,000 square miles were left without electricity for nearly 13 hours, although a death row inmate's life being spared as a result was not able to be confirmed. So Beecher asks Ribido if he's ever suffered any after-effects. Ribido says that it was at that time that he first met God who told him to play the oboe, and we have a quick back and forth in which oboe is said more times than I care to remember. And you had no after-effects? Sure. That's when I first met God. He shook my hand, smiled, and said, Bob, play the oboe. The oboe? The oboe. And do you? What? Play the oboe. No. I don't have the lips for it. <laughs> It's a nice little exchange between Beecher and Ribido, and one of the first times we've seen Beecher crack a genuine smile without having to be under the effects of drugs hanging out with Ryan. Beecher then completely undoes my point by seeking out Ryan and smoking some weed. So thanks for that, Tobias. Ryan says that he thought Schillinger had said that Beecher couldn't get high anymore, and Beecher just says, fuck him. So Beecher is continuing to gain a bit more self-confidence. Ryan asks if Beecher's been over his appeal, and Beecher reminds him that he's not a criminal lawyer, but considering the number of eyewitnesses... Ryan doesn't stand a chance with his appeal. Ryan takes that in his stride. He probably knew himself that he didn't have a case, but if you've got a chance to appeal, you might as well do so. He says that at least he isn't getting the juice late keen and that he should just let the Latinos take him down. That's the reason why they were there. Beecher asks him what he meant by that, and Ryan quickly realises that he's put his foot in it and let slip that Keane was set up. Beecher starts to say that if Keane was acting in self-defence, then he shouldn't be put to death, to which Ryan grabs Beecher, telling him, don't make trouble or you'll be next. So Beecher, even though what he is saying is true and the right thing to do, puts at risk the alliance that he's started with Ryan. So we see Beecher activate lawyer mode as he gets a copy of the transcript to Keane's trial and is reading them on his way back to his pod. Schillinger sees him and yells, Beecher! Another example of him being the master of the pun, and tells Beecher to come over. Beecher stuffs the notes into the back of his trousers as obviously he doesn't want Schillinger to find out what he's up to. He starts to gather Schillinger's laundry, like the good little servant that he is, and asks him whether or not he's heard anything about Keane being set up. Schillinger says that he has and that they got the whole thing on videotape. Beecher tells him that if they can get hold of the tape, then Keane won't be executed, and Schillinger reacts exactly as you would expect a neo-Nazi to do so. For all his wanting to do the right thing, Beecher can be very naive at times. Did he really think that Schillinger would be up for the adventure of finding the tape? We cut to the laundry room and Beecher is telling Ribido that he's going to go to McManus and tell him what might have happened in the gym, in the hope that McManus will investigate. But Ribido tells him that if he says anything, that Beecher will get himself killed. Ryan enters and apologises to Beecher for his outburst earlier and asks Beecher if he wants to go get high. But Beecher tells him that he's trying to keep his head clean. Ryan accepts that and leaves, so at least Beecher has mended fences with Ryan for the time being. Beecher turns his attention back to Ribido and says that he should represent Keane and appeal his murder conviction. So he seems to be giving criminal law a crack after all. Ribido says that the state disbarred Beecher, which he referenced himself in a previous episode. But Beecher says that the state can't take away what he does or who he is and that he can help Keane. Ribido says that Beecher needs to talk to Keane to find out what happened. But they both say that getting on the death row isn't going to be easy. Luckily, Donald Groves has been loitering in the background and says that he knows a way. Suddenly, we're in McManus's office with Beecher saying that he is in fear for his life. McManus asks who from, but Beecher says that he can't say and asks to be put into protective custody. To which McManus says that protective custody is only to be used in extreme cases. Beecher tells him that this is an extreme case, to which McManus says that next time he comes and asks he might not be able to do so, 
to which Beecher says that he's willing to take the risk. So we see Beecher being put into protective custody. Lucky for him and for us, he's been put into the cell next to Keen, and they start to talk to each other through the air vents. Keen. Keen. What? Beecher. Tobias Beecher. I need to talk to you about your trial. I read your transcript. You weren't very cooperative with your attorneys. I killed Martinez. Well, why didn't you tell the lawyers that you were set up? Look, Johnny Post killed Dino Ardelani because I told him to. Now the wise guys know that. Now they want me dead. If they kill me, one of my homeboys is going to kill them. And then they're going to kill another one of my boys. And on and on and on. My death can put an end to that. Not necessarily. Look, if I die, I feel like I might go to heaven now. If I go back to heaven city, I might go back to my old ways. I may lose my faith and my soul. I'm at peace right now, Beach. Please don't take that from me. Look, I'm not responsible for your soul. But as a lawyer, I am responsible for justice. I don't need your cooperation to file an appeal on your behalf. Beecher, please don't. It's something I have to do. We're back in the library and Beecher and Rebido are saying that they need to get hold of the videotape. Rebido asks, what are the chances of one of the guards giving it up? It would implicate them in the murder. To which Beecher looks up to the heavens and says, do what you can, Bob. It's at this point that Schillinger enters and Rebido quickly gets up and leaves. Schillinger asks Beecher why he was put into PC. Beecher saying that he just needed some time alone. Schillinger then asks what Beecher is up to now, to which he says that he's working on Ryan's appeal. Schillinger tries to look at one of the books on the table, but Beecher is trying to keep the book away from him and said that he would take another stab at the appeal. Schillinger senses that he's been lied to and asks the librarian if he wants to take a break. He knows that wasn't a question. Schillinger then tears a page out of one of the books and notices that Beecher is reading about a stay of execution and asks, since when is O'Reilly getting executed? Schillinger tells Beecher to eat the page, to which Beecher tells him, yeah, no, go away. But Schillinger quickly overpowers him and force feeds Beecher the page before doing the same for a second one. We don't know exactly how much book Beecher ate that day, but I'm willing to bet it was probably at least a chapter. We get a quick shot of Healy watching the incriminating tape, admiring his handiwork, before we then see him and two guards approach Rebido in the corridor. They say he's been asking questions about a certain videotape, but that said tape does not exist. There are a couple of quick shots of Healy then destroying the tape by pulling the film out of the cassette, and he then grabs Rebido by the neck, saying that maybe a couple of days in the hole will help clarify reality. We've seen this method of direction a couple of times now where two scenes essentially get packaged as one to help keep the story moving along, and it really helps the pacing of the show overall. So we head back down to what I'm going to start calling the drug pod, and Beecher is sat on one of the beds when Ryan comes over to him, says that he's heard that Beecher went to talk to Keen after he was told not to, saying that that took balls and asks if Beecher has started to grow some, but Beecher says that he had some and felt that he could get them back by helping Keen, but the lawyer in him is now dead. He asks Ryan if he has any dope, but Ryan feels that Beecher needs an upgrade and gives him some heroin, which Beecher snorts. So very quickly we've seen Beecher get that bit of confidence back, only to then have it taken away again. So similar to the last episode in which he was having a crisis of faith, Beecher is continuing with this decline in his spirit and he's now starting to take stronger and harder drugs to numb the pain. While Beecher is still far from his lowest point, and I'll cover that when we get to it, it's incredible how quickly his life started to unravel. Act 1 closes with Augustus giving us a monologue about squashing bugs, which also shows Beecher stretched out as if lying on the ground from the drugs he's been taking. And it's here where you can see the perils of filming Harold Perrineau in his glass box, as you can see the reflection of a camera operator in the glass. There are so many reflective surfaces in M-City, it must have been a nightmare trying to keep the production crew out of the shot. 
but sometimes things slip through the cracks. You squat a fly, step on an ant, squash a cockroach, you don't think much of it. In fact, killing a bug gives you a sense of accomplishment. Fucking ant was ruining your picnic. Cockroach was crawling through your kitchen cabinet. You put an end to their disgusting, miserable little lives and make a better world for everyone. Only for everyone you kill, more appear. Bigger. Uglier. Meaner than before. So starting off Act 2, we see Saeed walking with Leo and Rhea, and they're off to see Jefferson Keane. Saeed says that as a man of colour he is outraged by the verdict, but as a Muslim his main concern is for Keane's soul. Saeed refers to Keane by his convert name, which is Tizio Zoo which Keane also referenced last episode, but this seems to be the first that Leo's heard about it. Ray tells him that that was the name Keane chose upon his conversion. Although Keane does mention it in the last episode, I stuck to calling him Keane for the sake of ease, and there are enough characters in Oz already, and I'll just end up confusing myself if I start to include a new name of an already established character. Leo clarifies that Saeed wants to serve as Keane's minister, which Saeed corrects him that he should be referred to as his imam. I'm sure Leo didn't mean to offend Saeed, he just used terminology that he's used to. So Leo grants Saeed permission to go and speak to Keane on death row, but only about spiritual matters, and says that if he hears about Saeed or anybody else stirring things up, that he will give Keane a rabbi instead. We see Saeed visit with Keane, who lets out a little smile and they hold hands, showing a bond between each other. But we cut back to M-City where the inmates are watching a news report which is covering the build-up to Keane's execution and we see Sister Pete on the picket line. The reporter, the same woman that questioned Devlin at the press conference at the start of the episode, has a thick Boston accent on certain words. So maybe Oz is in Massachusetts and everybody commutes into work every day. As the day of the execution draws near, tension grows, both outside the walls at the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary and inside, where the debate on the death penalty is no less fierce. I don't believe in murder. First degree, abortion, or by jury decree, it's all murder! Lethal injection? What's wrong with the good old electric shit? Jefferson King will die tomorrow in this prison. In light of the historic, moral, and political nature of the event, we might lose sight of the human factors involved. We spoke today with Cornelius King, the inmate's father, and Helen Martinez, mother of the murder victim. You teach a boy right from wrong, then you just hope, you just hope for the best. I want him dead. I want him in the ground. Dead! 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 So as Martinez's mother says dead over and over again, Saeed faints and we see McManus going to see Dr. Nathan, who's back for the first time since episode one. She tells McManus that Keane's sister has had kidney failure and could die. McManus can't believe that this is happening and says that Dino is dead because of him and that Keane is going to join him. Gloria tells McManus, in the nicest way possible, as she says, that he is one fucked up guy. McManus' mood seems to quickly change as he asks her if they're not going to the play tonight, and the pair giggle like a couple of school kids. But at that point, Gloria is called away as Saeed has been rushed into the infirmary, and he looks like he's having some sort of outer body experience. They don't diagnose Saeed at this point, so we'll have to wait and see exactly what happens to him. We go back to death row, and Keane is talking with his brother Billy, and the pair seem to have made up somewhat since the last time we saw them together. Billy is giving Keane some grief about his hair, says that he'll make it look so nice they won't want to kill you, which was a nice little moment between the pair of them. Billy says that he saw their dad on TV talking about the family and he apologises for not being who he wants him to be. Keane looks up to him and tells Billy that he loves him and that Allah loves him too, but Billy says that his dad doesn't so it looks like Billy hasn't spoken to his dad for some time and 
presumably that stems from when Keane came out as a homosexual. McManus enters the scene, accidentally calls Keane Jefferson before correcting himself with Teasy, and tells the pair the bad news about their sister, and she'll most likely die soon unless she gets a kidney transplant. Keane quickly says just to take one of his, saying that he isn't going to have much use for it soon. We then see McManus looking out of a window at the protesters when Leo comes up to him and tells him that Devlin won't grant a stay of execution for Keane. McManus says that even Devlin can't be that heartless. Presumably he's forgotten their meeting from the previous episode. Leo explains that Devlin thinks that Keane's too dangerous to be sent to the hospital. Mamana says that Keane has changed, but Leo is still sceptical and says this conversion could be bullshit. But Mamanus reiterates that it's real and that Leo should go talk to Keane. He says that Devlin thinks of himself as a god, a callback to the Mount Olympus comparison from last time, and says that maybe they should get some help from the real one. So McManus goes to Ray and asks him to call the Cardinal to intercede. Ray says that the Cardinal is more conservative than Jesse Helms and Bill Buckley combined. So if, like myself, you're not completely clued up on historical US politics, Jesse Helms was the senator for North Carolina at the time, and to say his views were conservative is a massive understatement, while Bill Buckley was an author and commentator who founded the National Review magazine in 1955, which had a major impact on stimulating the conservative movement, and also hosted over 1,400 episodes of the public affairs show Firing Line. While not a politician, his commentary has been credited for the rightward swing in the Republican Party, exemplified by Barry Goldwater, Senator for Arizona, and Ronald Reagan, 33rd Governor of California, who then became the 40th President of the United States. Both Helms and Buckley were alive at the time of filming Oz, but both passed away in 2008. Buckley on February 27th, and Helms on July 4th. So needless to say, Ray is a bit apprehensive about calling the Cardinal and he tells McManus to make the call himself. McManus asks if Ray is afraid. Ray says no, but clearly there is an underlying issue as to why he won't make the call. He asks McManus, why do you think I work here? And then proceeds to tell McManus about his top-level schooling in the Vatican, and that the Cardinal had high hopes for Ray. That was until Ray started working in the Cardinal's office and asks too many questions and had a few too many opinions. And as a result, he was sent to Oz as a punishment. McManus calls Ray out, saying that Jefferson Keane's sister dies because you and the Cardinal had a tiff. Ray says that he will make the call, but it probably won't help, but McManus leaves before he can finish. McManus goes to see Saeed in the hospital, and we get another news report which states that Keane has now been granted a 30-day stay of execution in order to donate a kidney to his sister. The homeboys jump out of their seats high-fiving, with Kenny kissing the TV screen, and we see Keane getting transported from death row to the hospital, again with a little smile creeping across his face. He's probably smiled more in this one episode than he has in the series so far, but it's all coming from him doing good deeds such as helping his sister and making up with his brother before his execution. Clemency. That's a fancy word for mercy. You see, the governor can commute a death sentence. He has the power to just pick up the phone and say no. But to me, the only time the governor shows clemency is when he don't make that call. Because life in prison without parole is a shitload worse than death. Death is parole. Death is the real mercy. So we're back in M-City and Ryan and Augustus are playing checkers when D'Angelo says that he wants to speak to Ryan. Turns out that D'Angelo is running a gambling racket in Oz and he asks Ryan if he bet on the Detroit Tigers-Sox game. Turns out that Ryan lost and he blames fucking Thomas. 
The audio is a little hard to understand because D'Angelo talks so quickly. In fact, this whole segment plays out very quickly in the way that it's spoken and edited. Which is odd because the episode only runs at just under 54 minutes, including credits. So it's not like they were short of time. The subtitles on the DVD can't keep up with D'Angelo either. So I found a script of the episode online, and after looking through the 1997 rosters for the Detroit Tigers, the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago White Sox, I was able to deduct that Ryan is either blaming Larry Thomas, a pitcher who played three seasons in the main but was more likely referring to Frank Thomas, who was the top run scorer for the Chicago White Sox that year and a very successful player overall. A five-time All-Star is the only player in Major League history to have hit seven consecutive seasons with a .300 batting average, 100 runs scored and 20 home runs. He also had a video game called Frank Thomas Big Hurt Baseball, which I had for the Super Nintendo. I had no idea who he was at the time, I just got it because I wanted a baseball game to play. So Ryan has lost his bet and D'Angelo wants paying. They have a little push and a shove, what me and my dad would call handbags at dawn when we go down to the rugby, but Diane is in quickly to break it up and Ryan heads back to his checkers game. Augustus makes his move, telling Ryan that he lost, but Ryan says that he never loses when it counts. We then see Ryan talking to Kenny and Adebisi in a makeshift classroom that's due to start, telling them that Keen was set up. Adebisi seems sure that it was the wise guys, but Ryan says that it wasn't Nina and that he's been asking around, and implies that it was in fact D'Angelo who set him up and that he's been attempting to move up since Dino was killed. He says that Nino's been slow and that D'Angelo took it upon himself in a way to try and impress Nino. Kenny says that they've got to execute D'Angelo, but Adebisi tells him to calm down. You really get a feeling for young Kenny here. Everything is full steam ahead with him, and he doesn't think of the bigger picture. He's very much an eye-for-an-eye kind of person. Ryan tells him that they have to do what they have to do, but with the way things have been lately, if they kill D'Angelo, Leo will lock the prison down for good. He says that because Adebisi, Kenny and D'Angelo all work in the kitchen, that maybe D'Angelo has a little accident. Adebisi asks why Ryan suddenly seems to want justice for Keane, and Ryan says that he owes Keane one because he took care of Dino for him. So the class gets started and we meet Sister Peter's replacement, Colin Auerbach. He stands in front of the blackboard that reads, Show fear and you're already dead. Never a truer word has been written because the inmates give him no chance. He has no control over these men at all, and he is ironically trying to teach anger management. The only person who seems interested in the class is Groves, who is sat at the back taking notes, as we intercut with shots of D'Angelo having his little accident in the kitchen with Adebisi and Kenny. He gets hit round the head with a pan a couple of times and sprayed with boiling water from the dishwasher. We fade back to M-City with Nina looking at a picture of his late wife that he has in a pocket watch, when Ryan comes to see him, saying that he's heard what's happened to D'Angelo. So the story going round is that a steam pipe burst, knocking D'Angelo backwards and ended up hitting him on the head. It's quite the tale that's been told. Nina says that D'Angelo is unconscious and is going to be laid up for a while. Ryan says that if Nina ever needs an extra hand that he is available, citing that he took care of Keen for him. So Ryan is essentially trying to eliminate both of his enemies by befriending both of them and playing them off against each other. He's a real snake in the grass. Nino tells him about a friend that he had in the army, a guy called Donnie O'Reilly. He tells Ryan about the things that Donnie loved, and then says that maybe he and Ryan can do some business. Ryan stands up to shake Nino's hand, but Nino doesn't move an inch and Ryan leaves. So Nino certainly seems to want to forge an alliance with Ryan, but seemingly needs to earn his trust. He's seen that Ryan can solve a problem, like the one with Keen, but is also aware that it could come back to haunt him. They did have some dealings on the outside, after all. We see D'Angelo in the hospital, and Groves is tending to him, so Groves still works in the hospital, despite being sent to the hall twice for breaking into the morgue. He touches D'Angelo's wound and leaves, putting his fingers in his mouth as he goes. He's going to get himself some sort of disease doing that. But after that, we see Ray meeting up with 
with Alvarez. He asks Ray how his son is doing, to which Ray tells him that the baby isn't getting any better and that the doctors are thinking of taking the baby off of life support, and that Maritza thinks this is the best thing to do. Miguel disagrees and says that he doesn't want them to kill his son, but Ray tells him that the machines are the only thing keeping the baby alive, and if they turn them off he can have a natural death. Alvarez's reaction is sort of what you would expect. It must be the hardest decision to have to make, especially as a new parent. Alvarez says that he wants to see Maritza and the baby, but Ray says that he isn't allowed to. He isn't even allowed to make a phone call, and the doctors are looking to start a psychiatric evaluation of him after he cuts himself, hence why he's back in the hospital this time. He says that he slashed his face for the baby and that what it achieved is between God and himself. Ray rightfully points out that if he tells that to a psychiatrist that he'll be locked up until he's 90. Alvarez tells Ray that he has to get him out of the hospital so that he can go and see his baby and starts to raise his voice. Ray leaves but you can tell that the issue is going to weigh on his mind. He goes to Colin and brings McManus along too. Ray tells Colin that he got Alvarez on the road to redemption and McManus makes the point that the doctor has said that keeping the baby alive at this point is cruel. Ray thinks that once Alvarez sees the condition of the baby he will understand why the doctors are wanting to turn off the machine. Colin says that he needs time to make his decision, but Mamanis tells him that they don't have any because the doctors wants to turn the machines off tomorrow. Colin tells them to forget it, but Mamanis then tells Ray that he doesn't need Colin's permission and that he will take the responsibility himself. So it's a good move on McManus' part by allowing Alvarez out to see his son, but at the same time, why didn't he just okay it for Ray in the first place rather than going to see useless Colin? So much like last episode, we see Alvarez and Ray go to the hospital as the church choir sings over the scene. Even though both scenes are essentially set up the same way, the tone is completely different this time around. Alvarez says a silent prayer as Ray puts on his priest's stole, which is purple in colour and looks a bit like a large piece of ribbon, and reads the baby the last rites as we pan across to see the heart machine flatlining. We return to M-City and see Alvarez telling Ray that he appreciates everything that he's done for him, and proceeds to say that it has happened for a reason and that the experience has opened up a new side to him. All the while, Ray's looking on quite nervously, almost as if he's afraid to leave Alvarez alone after he sliced his face up last time. Ray gets up to leave, but Alvarez asks him, where was God when my son died? To which Ray replies the same place he was when his own son died, as the scene fades to black to end Act 2. It's a very intense scene between the pair, and there is very little in the way of background noise going on around them. Usually you can hear something happening, but in this it's just the dialogue, and it adds to being a really personal moment between Alvarez and Ray. It's very well done. Hey father. Where was God when my son died? Same place he was when his own son died. So Act 3 starts with Gloria checking on Keen's stitches from his kidney surgery. She says that he seems to be healing up fine and that he'll be able to be transferred back, but before she can say it, Keen says, Death row, it's fine doc, you can say it. She probably was going to say it, but you jumped in very quickly and said it yourself. Diane enters at the rear of the room and tells Keen that he has a visitor, which is his dad Cornelius, who we saw earlier in the news report before Saeed fainted. He's played here by Frankie Faison, a tremendous character actor. He's probably most famous in film for being the only actor to appear in all four of the Hannibal Lecter movies. I say four because I don't count Hannibal Rising as part of the franchise because it's shit. So in those four movies, he played Lieutenant Fisk in Manhunter, and then played the kind-hearted orderly Barney Matthews in Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal and Red Dragon. 
and is most famous on TV as playing Commissioner Irvin Burrell on The Wire. He was also nominated for a Best Actor Tony Award in 1987 for his role as Troy Maxson in August Wilson's play Fences. So Keen and his dad have a big hug, and Cornelius tells him that his sister is recuperating faster than expected, but that he is struggling a little with all the publicity that they've been getting. He also says that the family has received a bunch of cards, and that one person sent $100 cash, but Aunt Tilly said that he had to send it back. Keen asks if he did, and Cornelius laughs, saying, No fucking way. Again, it's a really nice moment between two characters. Even though it's only a few seconds, they're able to just be completely normal with each other. Keen asks his dad to go talk to Billy, to which Cornelius gets a little frustrated and says that when he gets out, what is Billy ever going to be? To which Keen says, your son. And he's right, no matter what a person may have done, he is still his son at the end of the day, and it would be a cruel act from Cornelius to not reconcile with Billy if it is Keen's dying wish. Diane tells them that their time is up, and Cornelius does this very sad turn and look to her as if to say, what, already? And they hug again for the last time. As that hug ends, you can see Cornelius look as though he wants to say something else, but he can't. It's really tough to watch. And Frankie gets so much out of his expressions, more than anything that could have been written for him. It's so well acted on his part. From Cornelius coming over to the scene ending, it only lasts a little under two minutes. It's rare when you say goodbye to someone that you know it's the last time. You can try to say whatever it is you should have said before, or you can just hold on tight. Just hold on, hoping the moment will last you a lifetime. So Augustus narrates about seeing people for the last time before we then see Cornelius at a window with Diane. He tells her that her father should never see their own son die and he begins to cry. Diane starts to put her hand on his, hesitates for a moment, but then does it anywhere. It's an interesting bit of character development for Diane. So far she's mainly been a by-the-book guard, and probably been told not to show any emotion to either inmates or visitors, but this is her as a parent showing her human side a bit. We then cut to death row where McManus has gone to see Keane. Hey, uh, I brought you some tea. You brought me some tea? Why? Well, it's herbal. Maybe you don't want it. Just so happens I'm out. Thanks. So, so, why are you in McManus? I mean, what do you want? I don't know. I just, uh, I just wanted to uh, tell you that I'm sorry you're gonna die. And you'd like my forgiveness. Whatever you think you've done, I forgive you. So McManus goes to see Gloria and starts to massage her neck. He asks if Saeed's test results are back and she tells him that everything is fine but she is still waiting for the result of an MRI to come through. McManus asks if she wants to go to dinner tonight but that she can't because she has to witness Keane's execution. McManus' mood completely changes and says that she never told him that she was the doctor who had to witness. Gloria protests saying that she did tell him but McManus says that that wouldn't be something that he would forget. Gloria asks what the big deal is, saying that all she's doing is prescribing the drug and declaring the death, saying that it's not like she's the one who has to stick the needle in Keane's arm. But Manus fires back saying that doctors are supposed to be healers and says that he doesn't want her to be doing the execution. Gloria tells him that they've only been going out for a couple of weeks and asks where does he get off on telling her what she can and can't do. She starts to leave, but Mumbanus pulls her back by the arm, to which 
Gloria rightly tells him not to, and he hits a wall cabinet in frustration. Gloria tells McManus that he should take some time off, and that he's been around Oz for so long that he's starting to act like the inmates. So this is the first time that we've seen McManus actually lash out in anger over something, whereas before he's been presented as quite a liberal person, to the point that the governor referred to him as a prissy last time out. If anything, it humanises McManus a little bit more, showing that he gets mad at things just like everybody else does. We see Diana at a window looking down at Sister Pete and the protesters. She's having a drink from a bottle of vodka as McManus comes up and joins her and she offers him a drink too. A man runs up to Sister Pete and grabs her sign but she delivers a, a swift kick to the balls and he's done for. Diane says that she takes it that McManus isn't going to watch Keane's execution, and she says that she isn't going to either, saying she can't stand watching flowers die, let alone another human being, and the closest that she ever came was Bambi. Diane then proceeds to tell the story about how her ex was a big-time hunter, and from there we get a story about being taken along on a hunt. Now on this hunt, she managed to shoot a deer, but she tells about how she went over to it, and as she leaned down and whispered, I'm sorry to the deer. Diane tells about how she ended up marrying this hunter and how every time she went into the den of their house she had to look at this deer's dead eyes as it was mounted on the wall. Upon her divorce this was the only item that Diane took and she says that she ended up burying the deer head. Amanda says that he is feeling like his head is hanging on someone's wall tonight and then asks Diane if she wants to go have some dinner, which she agrees to. We cut back to death row and we see Keane talking to another inmate via holding a pocket mirror out of his cell while the other plays with a yo-yo. Keane says that he's feeling okay for a man about to die. We find out that this other inmate is due to to be executed next Thursday, but is currently in the middle of an appeal. Keane asks if the other man has ever seen that old movie with Susan Hayward saying that it's called She's Gotta Live or something like that. The movie he's referring to is actually called I Want to Live from 1958, and is about a prostitute that is sentenced to death for murder, but she is pleading her innocence, and it's based on the life of Barbara Graham, who spoiler alert here, was executed by a gas chamber along with two convicted accomplices, Jack Santo and Emmett Perkins, in 1955. It's available on DVD from most places if you want to catch it. So Keane lays out the outline of the ending of the movie saying about how her lawyer has applied for a reprieve and that they're waiting for a call from the governor. The other inmate asks if in true Hollywood fashion she gets the call at the last minute, to which Keane says no and that she fries. So the ending changed slightly from gas chamber to electric chair. And you see his face drop as the moment of realisation hits him about what is about to happen. Leo approaches Keane's cell and asks some formalities, such as what Keane wants done with his property, any money that he has and whether or not the family will be claiming Keane's body. Saeed is with Leo, acting as one of the witnesses for the execution. Leo asks Saeed if he's sure that he should see this, probably due to Saeed only recently been released from hospital, but Saeed says that he and Keane have come a long way together and he's not going to turn his back on him now. And with that, the long walk begins. Saeed tells Keane that death is the supreme moment of truth, and Keane tells Saeed that the officer took his kufi cap and that he doesn't want to die without it, but Saeed places his takir on Keane's head as they begin to pray. We get a piece of Augustus narration saying that 3,000 people are waiting on death row, and that Congress were denying inmates access to federal courts, and states were shortening the appeals process for death row inmates. Obviously, Augustus is referring to 1997 numbers when he says that 3,000 are waiting on death row. According to the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, as of June 28, 2018, there are currently 2,682 death row inmates in the United States. While this narration is going on, we see Diane and McManus having sex in another part of the prison. So they either had a very quick dinner, or dinner is some sort of euphemism to the pair of them. So the officers bring Keane into a room with a stretcher in front of a large curtain. Leo tells Keane to lay down as the officers strap him into position. Augustus tells us that in the US there is one execution every single week. With the 2018 number being so similar to the 1997 number, that's most likely still accurate. We see the doctors arrive and they rub Keane's arm with alcohol. I remember the late George Carlin mentioning this in one of his routines about how it's stupid that they do that. 
Don't want him to get an infection now, do we? The curtain is drawn back and we see Saeed sitting with Keane's dad, along with a number of other witnesses. Leo speaks through an intercom, asking if Keane has anything he wants to say. Keane just turns his head slightly and says that he wants his family to know that he loves them, and the execution punishes them more than it does him. He also says that he is sorry for the three murders that he has committed, and that he wishes that by killing him, they could be brought back. As we zoom in on Keane's eye, a tear rolls down his cheek as he says that his time on Earth has been short, but that he is ready to move on and all praise to Allah. Keane's eye dissolves into McManus's eye and we zoom out of his and he lets out a gasp. While I'm sure this is symbolic of Keane passing away, I'm also sure there is some fan theory out there of McManus being a Jedi, as he seems to have felt a great disturbance in the Force. We cut back and see Keane's eyes close for the last time before we then cut to a gloating Devlin giving another press conference saying that justice has been served. We go back to death row and see the inmate from earlier doing press-ups. Leo approaches his cell and tells the man that the Supreme Court has refused to hear his appeal and that the execution is scheduled for tomorrow, so a passage of time occurs off-camera. Prisoner number 97L641, Richard Letalian, convicted April 3rd, 97, murder in the first degree. Sentence, death. Tomorrow? Well, my schedule's clear. Okay. Hey, Warden. This I want to tell you. Something I never told anybody. I suffocated Jennifer Miller. Yeah, I know. That's why you're gonna die. Also suffocated Dorothy Payne. Who? Dorothy Payne. She's a waitress up in Council Bluffs, Iowa. You confessing another murder? Uh-huh. I'll notify the proper authorities. Wait. I also suffocated Ethel Peterson and Gertrude Victor. And Mary Rapp. And Christina Trudell and Eleanor Hughes. Will Lomez, Lisa Masters, and Lorraine McCarthy, and Betty Case. And Irene Martin, and Amelia Nugent, and Elizabeth Phelps, and Lucille Upton, and Esther Vaughn. <laughs> what I did. We move into Ray's office as he tells us that Lytalian has confessed to a total of 39 murders, all by suffocation. Sister Pete is in Ray's office with him and says that if the governor had his way, he would execute Lytalian 39 times. Ray says that he has to go and see him, and Pete asks him how he's able to go along with things, as he is as much against the death penalty as she is. He tells Pete that his job is not to make judgments, his job is to be by his side if he needs him. Ray lights a candle and asks his Virgin Mary figure to pray for Lytalian. Should say a Virgin Mary statue, really, a figure makes it sound like she's a toy action figure. As he leaves, he says that the candle is for Lytalian and all his victims. So Lytalian here is played by, and I couldn't believe this when I watched this episode back, I didn't recognise him at all. It's played by Eric Roberts. He has aged terribly in the last 20 years. Like I say, I didn't recognise him at all. Born in Biloxi, Mississippi in 1956, Roberts has quite an extensive career with over 500 acting credits to his name. The majority of these credits are very small or even cameo roles in utterly terrible films rather than any leading parts. He has 61 credited appearances for projects listed for 2018 and 2019 alone. 
There's far too much listed to go into vast detail here, but according to IMDb, he is most famous for appearing as Sal Moroni in 2008's The Dark Knight, Runaway Train from 1985, and the last thing I saw him in was The Human Centipede 3, and the only reason I watched those is out of morbid curiosity with a wife on Netflix. He's also the brother of Oscar-winning actress and the much more famous Julia Roberts. So we see Lytalian eating his last meal, he reminisces about eating bull's balls at the Bohemian Grove. Ray asks if that is a restaurant, but Italian tells him that it's a retreat in San Francisco for professionals, bankers, etc. He tells Ray that he grew up in the Bay Area and that he always wanted to go there as a kid, and that he would get to swim in the Russian River with a Secretary of State and piss on a redwood tree next to Donald Trump which he finds hilarious and says that those guys are the elite and men of power. If only he knew what would happen to the world some 20 years later when that tree presser took office. It sounds like a proper boys club and he says women were excluded, but the Supreme Court forced them to let women in and that he didn't want anything to do with it after that. Ray says to him to imagine the kind of women he could have met, to which Lytalian says they were not the type that he would want to fuck. Ray tells him there's a difference between fucking a woman and wanting to kill them, but Lytalian doesn't seem to think so. He gives Ray a very sly look up and down and asks if Ray's ever been laid. He already knows the answer, he just wants to make Ray answer the question. Ray tells him no and Lytalian asks, then what would you know about pussy? What would you know about anything? BD plays this scene very well, I thought. He delivers everything in a very convincing, professional manner, and the character of Ray comes off as being a bit sheepish when asked about being with a woman. Ray answers Lytalian's question saying that all I know is that once upon a time you wanted to walk in the woods with important people and now instead you're here. Italian says he's there because he loves women, and that he's had trailer park trash in West Virginia, done rich girls up the bum in Aspen, an amputee with both legs missing. I was half expecting Johnny Cash's I've Been Everywhere to start playing in the background. Ray says that fucking them isn't the same as loving them, but Italian says that he sounds like a shrink that he once had. He says that he slept with her, her daughter, and then killed them both. Ray asks, if you love women so much, why do you kill them? Lytalian's saying that when you love someone, they own you, they possess you, and that he will not be possessed. Ray finally gives up and tells Lytalian that he's there to give him absolution for his sins. Lytalian finishes things telling Ray that he should have ordered bull's balls as his last meal. We hard cut to Lytalian lying on the stretcher awaiting his lethal injection, and his cocky demeanour has completely disappeared, and he says that he isn't ready to die as Augustus' narration explains the lethal injection procedure. Another good piece of symbolism is used here as Lytalian's yo-yo drops to the ground. I'm really not ready for this. Oh, man. First, the inmate's given sodium pentothal, the same anesthetic used in hospitals for major surgery. Then a massive dose of pancuronium bromide that paralyzes the diaphragm. Then potassium chloride to stop the heart. We get a quick shot of Gloria confirming Lytalian's death before we cut to Leo's office where Sister Pete is waiting for him as she prays and holds some rosary beads. Pete tells Leo that Christ was executed and that if he wasn't, the world would have been a very different place. She says that she wants her job back, which Leo agrees to immediately. Pete questions as to why she doesn't have to beg for it, to which Leo says if it'll make you feel better, then beg. Pete tells him that she still disagrees with him on the death penalty. Leo says, even for a cyst like Lytalian? So no prizes for guessing how little Leo thought of him. Pete says that the Bible makes it pretty clear that you cannot take a human life for any reason, to which Leo quite correctly says that the Bible also says an eye for an eye. He says that maybe God's talking out of both sides of his mouth, or that maybe he's as confused about the death penalty as everyone else. Then says that the only thing that's for sure is that nobody is coming to claim Lytalian's body, and he's going to be stuck in a cheap pine box 
and thrown into a hole in Potter's Field, which isn't a real place, it's an American expression of biblical origin for a pauper's grave. Leo says that there will be nobody there to grieve for him, but Pete says that she will grieve for him, to which Leo says that that's why he loves her and that he's glad that she's back. This is again a nice scene amongst all the chaos of others and reveals a previously unseen relationship between Leo and Sister Pete. We've only seen them together in staff meetings up to this point, so to get some actual interaction between their characters was a nice change of pace. Ray returns to his office, removes his clerical collar and extinguishes the candle that he lit earlier. There's his brother on death row somewhere. He checked in when he was 16. He sat there. Another 16 years while the courts and lawyers argued about this and that. While he waited, he painted a mural on his wall. For all those years, he painted, not letting a soul see what he was up to. Finally, when he was 32 and had spent more life on death row than in his mama's house, all his appeals were exhausted. He was about to die. As he was about to be let out for the final time, he finally unveiled his masterpiece. All there was was six words. Death is certain, life is not. The next day, the hacks painted over it. So that was Season 1, Episode 4, Capital P. So much happened in this episode. You've got Leo laying down the law with Sister Pete at the start. There's Alvarez having to make the painful decision to turn off his newborn's life support. Diane has a whole bunch of character development in her interactions with Cornelius Keane and ends up sleeping with McManus. We find out a little about Ray's past at the school in the Vatican. Rebido was saved by a blackout. And it all happens around the first main cast member death. While the episode itself has a body count of two, the other being the guest starring Eric Roberts as Richard Lytalian, the episode centres around the death of Jefferson Keane by lethal injection. As covered in episode one, Leon only committed to appearing in four episodes of the series, so was always going to be the front runner to be the one killed off in this episode. Post Oz, Leon appeared as David Ruffin in the critically acclaimed TV miniseries The Temptations, which chronicled the career of the Motown Records group of the same name, before appearing in the TV movies Mr. Rock and Roll, the Alan Freed story in which he played Jackie Wilson, and 2000's Little Richard playing the titular role. In 2001, he landed roles in Ali and Buffalo Soldiers alongside Will Smith and Joaquin Phoenix, respectively. Alongside his acting, Leon has also made the move into the role of producer on projects such as The Price of Kissing, The Elbow Room, and Where Children Play, as well as directing his first short, Make America Black Again, in 2018. While he will largely be remembered for appearing in the video to Madonna's Like a Prayer, Waiting to Exhale, and Above the Rim before appearing in Oz, his most famous role will forever be as Darius Bannock in Walt Disney's 1993 sports comedy Cool Runnings, which was loosely based on the true story of the Jamaican bobsleigh team at 1988's Winter Olympics in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and was also the final film released in the lifetime of his co-star John Candy. In addition to acting, producing, and directing on screen, Leon has also had successful theatre roles in Friends and Lovers, Three Ways to Get a Husband, in which he co-starred with Billy D. Williams, and a revival of of Why Do Good Girls Like Bad Boys. Away from acting, Leon is the lead vocalist and songwriter of the band Leon and the Peoples. In 2007, the group was nominated for an International Reggae and World Music Award, and won the award for Best International Artist at the Joe Higgs Reggae Awards for their debut album, The Road Less Travelled. This episode also sees the final appearance of Billy Keane, played by Derek Simmons. Whilst continuing to work on television, Simmons has most recently appeared in the second series of Netflix's Luke Cage, however he tends to undertake stunt work more than acting work these days, and appeared in the latest instalment of The Purge series, 
the first purge. So that is everything for this episode. As always, you can go back and listen to the previous episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts, be that on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podbean. And as always, you can follow the show on Twitter at Podcast, on Instagram at Podcast, and you can send any emails to insideozpodcast at gmail.com. Leave a review for the show as it always helps with the exposure for the show as well. I'll be back next time with Season 1, Episode 5, Straight Life. It's a beautiful thing Love for your brother Love is a beautiful